Doug McDermott, a Pacer yet again. How is he different now than he was last time he was a Pacer? We'll talk to Noah McGarrow-George, who covers the Spurs and has seen McDermott the last three years for more insight there. Plus, Pacers, Knicks, what happened? We'll break it all down today on the Locked On Pacers podcast. You are Locked On Pacers, your daily Indiana Pacers podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What up, y'all? Hope you're having a great weekend. Happy Saturday or Sunday. We'll see and welcome into another edition of the Locked On Pacers podcast, where we, of course, talk about the Indiana Pacers. As always, my name's Tony East. I cover the team for Forbes and SI. And today, as you can tell, bonus weekend episode. My weekend will involve some travel. So not sure when this is coming up. We have a lot to cover. The Pacers made some trades this week. They have a game Saturday, which could feature their new players. Again, I'm not sure because I'll be on the road, but I want to get deeper into Doug McDermott, what he's done with the Spurs, how his game's kind of evolved since his time with the Pacers, what he can even add at his new age. Noah Magaro, George covers San Antonio, has for the last couple of years, one of my favorite people covering the Spurs. He's going to join us for the first 15 minutes to talk Doug McDermott, how he can help the Pacers, how a change in scenery could make him look a little better. Then after that, We'll be talking Pacers-Knicks. I'm recording this on Friday. I have no idea what happened in that game, so maybe I'm talking with too happy of a tone. Maybe I'm not excited enough. We'll see, but we'll talk Pacers-Spurs after a conversation with Noah Magaro-George about Doug McDermott. Let's get right into that and then talk some Pacers-Knicks. Doug McDermott is a Pacer again. <laughs> he went from the Pacers to the Spurs, now back to the Pacers. His career has changed since then. He played on some decent Spurs teams. He's now played with Victor <laughs> Wembanyama, and now he's with... The Pacers to catch up on McDermott, his career since then, how he's changed, what he could do for the Pacers. One of my favorites covering the Spurs, maybe the best Substack name of anyone covering <laughs> a specific team. It's Noah Magaro George, whose Substack is called The Vic and Roll. You have also corporate knowledge, not you, but like the Spurs do. Why are yep. the, why is San Antonio just crushing the Substack name game? It's not fair. Absolutely. Yeah. And also Matthew Tynan, who's there. Awesome dude. Great reporter. Great writer. Yeah. So like check his stuff out too. But the names on Substack for Spurs uh, media, it's they're kind of popping off. I'll, I'll take the I, w- I won't be humble on that one. I like the name that I chose. Vic and Roll. I thought it was pretty solid. <laughs> Vic and Roll is very good. I have both fortunately and unfortunately both watched a lot of the Spurs and consumed a lot of Spurs content this year because of Wendy. <laughs> I've watched some McDermott, but not as much in recent seasons prior to this. And so you cover the Spurs. Obviously, you've watched him the last couple of years as his game has evolved and changed since his time with Indiana. And now he's back with the Pacers. So I guess I will start with that before we dive into this specific season, right? 161 games he played for the Spurs. How did you kind of see his, his game change from when he got there to what he's doing now for San Antonio, what kind of player, or is he still just this flies from the corner of the wing and drills threes kind of guy? Yeah, I hate to I hate to sell him short in any way, but I don't think he really changed in any positive ways. Um, yeah. he, he's a little older. He's lost a step. He didn't really have... Uh, you know, much of a first step or, or great lateral mobility or, or anything like that on the defensive end. So he hasn't gotten better on defense, but he certainly hasn't gotten any worse on offense. Like he's still a guy you can run floppy sets for. Uh, he's a guy who, you know, can come off of pin downs. He can catch and shoot threes in transition. Like he, he's got a lot of shot versatility. He's a good cutter. He's a, as Pop would call it, a space chaser, a guy who just finds holes in the defense. So he still brings that, but yeah, as he kind of, you know, played more and more for San Antonio, you can see it, you know, the minutes have gone down, the roll has gone down, the shots have gone down, the three-point percentage has gone up, but, you know, the volume has gone down as his minutes have gone down. So, 
I wouldn't say a changed player, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. If, if you're just getting him for what you think he is, which is what we've talked about, then I think you got a good, you know, sort of trade haul, if you will, for, for what you had to give up to get McDermott, which was, you know, nothing. <laughs> that second could be something. Who knows what the Clippers will be in five <laughs> years. But yeah, it's been interesting kind of tracking him with San Antonio because he got there and DeJounte Murray was a spur <laughs> and Josh Primo was a spur. They were like, they weren't a good team, but they, they had to play in that first year, right? That he was there and, you know, they were like competitive-ish and Josh Richardson could create some shots and Lonnie Walker could. And now you watch the Spurs and it's like a big deal to everybody that Trey Jones is playing point guard. And like the thing about all, all that to say, like their level of shot creation outside of McDermott has changed significantly in his time there. And I'm curious how, especially like he... I mean, maybe he makes a two dribble move once a game, but like he is never creating his own shot. He's very reliant on sets, on someone setting him up, on timing, all sorts of stuff like that. And so when the ball is kind of popping or the team can have someone to make a defense crack and he has space that he can get into, like you just said, Popovich loves, he can be more effective. But in situations like that where they are now, how much is kind of the dynamic of the Spurs and their creators and their guards kind of affected what he can be and what his peak level is? Yeah, I don't know that it's changed all that much because like I think DeJounte Murray kind of had this reputation as being maybe a better player than he actually was because he made an all-star team but yeah. he wasn't a great you know advantage creator he wasn't a guy who got you know consistently doubled or got a ton of dribble penetration in a way that was collapsing the defense like he's a pretty rudimentary playmaker and this is not like a segment to talk down on DeJounte in any way but I don't know that the advantage creators on San Antonio are that much less dynamic than they were when DeJounte was there or when Lonnie was there or Josh Richardson. Like, I think some of the names have changed a bit, but as far as advantage creation has gone, San Antonio is still pretty lacking in that department. You know, Trey Jones does a pretty decent job of getting into the pain and then kicking it out, but I really haven't seen it affect Doug. I think the only way I've really noticed it is his first year in San Antonio, as you mentioned, like they were kind of a playing team. They were respectable in some way his cutting numbers were still really good. Like he was a high volume cutter and he was also a guy who was super efficient on cuts. And I don't know if it's necessarily because San Antonio doesn't have a lot of eyes on other guys and if defenses don't really have to pay attention to the other guys, but Doug's not cutting as much as he used to. And like the efficiency on the cuts isn't as good as it was, especially like in that first year. So, you know, whether that has to do with maybe some of the waning athleticism or, you know, whether it has to do with a little bit of the downgrade in that department for San Antonio as far as advantage creators. But I would say for the most part, he was the same guy. It didn't impact him too, too much. What do you think this year, you know, you look at his numbers and it's it, per game numbers can be fluky, but his minutes are down. His shot attempts are down. It's really interesting looking, though, because his percentages from three are good. His true shooting is really good. But he's only taking threes, basically. His three-point attempt rate's insane, 80%. It's, like, <laughs> never been higher than 60 before. Like, why has his statistical profile changed so much this year specifically in terms of he's now threes only and his scoring's down a bit. He's not this guy who can get to the rim every so often during a game. Like, why do you feel like that is? Is it just... He's 32 now. He can't he can't do it enough. <laughs> Certainly a factor in that. I also think when you're watching Doug McDermott and the Spurs in particular, they're the worst three-point shooting team in the league, even with Doug McDermott being like top 10 in three-point percentage, granted lower volume. And I think they kind of need him to be on the perimeter just to have a little bit of gravity as a shooter. Because we know, you know, he has gravity as an off-ball shooter. He's a guy who defenses pay attention to when he moves, uh, when he's coming off of screens, during set plays, and that sort of stuff. So 
I think that is also impacted, you know, his, his sort of shot diet, if you will, because they don't really have a use for him to, you know, quick rip or, or get to the basket. And he, he doesn't really have a lot of that in his game to begin with. So it feels like with how bad the Spurs have been at shooting the three this year, they just need someone who could be out there, which honestly, I'm kind of curious to see how it works without McDermott. I know he's only 15 minutes per game, but when you were already the worst in the league, <laughs> you know, you can't go down <laughs> in the rankings, but you can go down percentage. And, and I think that is something that can impact the spacing and certainly the development of some of the, uh, the younger ball handlers, creators on this team. Buddy Heald went out, obviously, in the Pacers' maneuvers on Thursday, and they got McDermott back, and general manager Chad Buchanan said, you know, a natural instinct for us was we traded away a shooter. We want another one. We want to replace that skill. Buddy Heald's percentage is down this year. Doug McDermott's shooting like 6% better from three, but Heald's volume's higher. And something that the Pacers have gushed about with Heald, specifically Tyrese Halliburton and TJ McConnell this week, was his gravity, right? Like, when he's running around, teams are like, uh-oh, we got to chase Buddy Heald. We can't get away from him. As Doug McDermott is what he is now, as he's constantly spacing for the Spurs now, do you get the sense that he still has that, like when he was with the Pacers, especially when he was doing his two-man game with Sabonis, he did have that level of gravity. Do you get the sense that it's still that level where teams are like, uh-oh, Doug McDermott's cutting, uh-oh, there's, or are they like kind of willing to live with it sometimes? I think they might be willing to live with it sometimes. And I also think... As you would know, I mean, you watched Buddy Hill all season. Like, Buddy Hill is also a guy who can play, make a little bit, put the ball yeah, on the floor a little definitely. bit. And, and Doug doesn't have, you know, Doug just can't do that. Like, Doug is a guy who, if he is going to get an assist in the game, it's because it's a pass from one man away and he just swung the ball. You know, he's not, <laughs> he's not someone who's going to create shots for others. He's not a guy who's passing guys open. He's not a guy who you ever really want handling the ball or running pick and rolls. Like, Love Dougie. I, I don't think he's anywhere near what Buddy Hild is, was. And, and I don't think necessarily Doug McDermott is quite what he was a few years ago. Though, again, like mostly the same player. I don't think there's been a massive drop off, but I do think he's not necessarily the same player he was as far as how other teams view him when he left Indiana. Yeah, he, I, I lose them a little bit. Like with the Pacers, especially the first two years he was here when Nate McMillan was the coach. They kind of played slow, but he would just get into these two-man actions with with Sabonis or even sometimes three-man with McConnell where it was just like, boom, 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 cut, pass, handoff. And it was so fast that it was like kind of broke up the, the slog of the Pacers and it would be effective and he was a great shooter then. He still is. Like he, he's lost a little bit of a step, right? So like that isn't as possible with him anymore. So uh, he's still a valuable spacer, but I think that's kind of where the gravity's gone too is you're not like panicking in that action because – if he comes around to handoff, it's not like he's like bursting to the rim and scaring you at the basket, you know. And that used to be a thing. Like TJ McConnell mentioned to be his passing the other day. Like that's not a thing that you think of with Doug McDermott anymore. Yeah. Uh, there is a whole other side of the court. And Doug McDermott <laughs> has never really been a good defender. But now that he's lost a step, I mean, I could just read you on off stats. I know you watch the Spurs, obviously. Spurs defense, which already is just okay at best. Uh, Spurs defense is six points per 100 possessions worse. When Doug McDermott is on the floor, their offense gets better, but only two points better. I mean, is he just totally worthless on that end of the floor besides his size at this point because he has lost a step, certainly? I hate to say yes, but I have to be honest with you. I, I, think, I think the answer is yes. Yeah. And he's like one of those guys who you watch him out there and you're kind of just hoping that he survives. Like he's a guy who's easily beat off the dribble. 
Um, if he's caught in any sort of screening actions, he's dying on screens. He's not a guy who can recover. He's not a guy who's going to get in a rear view contest. He's not someone who you can stick on post players. Like he's easily displaced in the post if there's a mismatch there. So he's just, it feels like you're always trying to hide Doug McDermott. And maybe the Pacers can can do that in some way that the Spurs can't. I, I would say probably not by your reaction, but <laughs> the Spurs were not good at hiding him. And they didn't have great defensive personnel. And I don't necessarily think Indiana is known right now for being a defensive juggernaut. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Doug has not been good on the defensive end. Doug has not been good on that end. And I don't think he's getting any better. This might be a rose-colored glasses kind of question, right? But, like, you know, you're covering the Spurs. Like, Doug McDermott on the floor is a plus two for them in offensive rating to get them to 111 instead of 109, right? The Pacers are routinely, even without Tyrese Halbert on the floor, like, 117, 118 plus. Do you think that just simply inserting him onto a better offensive team will make him look a little bit better, even knowing that he will not help the Pacers on defense at all? I think it could. I really do think it could because you look at San Antonio and we talked about it. They don't really have a guy who people are that scared of besides Wimbenyama. And I think having someone like Tyrese Halliburton who has the ball in his hands more often, and you also have just a better supporting cast of guys who you have to worry about, whereas... You know, Doug spent moments where he's on the court with guys like Julian Champigny or Trey Jones, who like if the ball's not in their hands, people don't care. And even if the ball is in Julian Champigny's hands, no, nobody really cared anyways. So I think when you have someone as dynamic as Tyrese Halliburton, you still have some of that supporting cast that you have there in Indiana. I think he could look a lot better. And like there were times where the two man game was kind of fun with him and Wimbenyama where... You know, they were doing some like de- delay zoom overrun kind of things where he was intentionally overrunning a screen and then coming back on the other side when he lost his man. And like, I think you could have some of that going on there in Indiana. But yeah, I, I think at the end of the day with Doug McDermott, he is what he is. And, you know, he's not going to replace Buddy, but he certainly is still a very good shooter. I got to see Wemby do the thing where he just like, <laughs> I don't even know what to call this pass. Do you guys have a name for this in San Antonio? Where he just drops it straight down. <laughs> I love when he did that. He did it with McDermott a few times. I absolutely love those. Yeah, this is good intel. I'm excited to see what McDermott can do now, what he'll be for the Pacers in a new situation. I guess the last one for me would be not necessarily McDermott related, but did you think this made sense for the Spurs? I mean, selling expiring contract for a second rounder. I mean, they lose a quality-ish player, but... I mean, they get Marcus Morris, it sounds like he'll be bought out. What did you think of in general? <laughs> yeah, generally, I kind of felt like, one, the Spurs probably want to do right by Doug McDermott and get him to a situation where he's at least competing for something, even if it's not a title. It's, you know, playoff run, being a part of something special, maybe. And, and like, the second rounder may end up being nothing. It may end up being something down the line. But I think it made sense just from a perspective of, well you can't just reasonably let him sit there and not play at all down the stretch of the season. And if you want to get guys like City Sissoko minutes down the stretch, then like you're going to have to move him or you're going to have to bench him. So you might as well get what you can for him. So I was hoping for a little bit more, but being realistic, you know, who was giving up more for Doug McDermott? I really don't think anybody was. Yeah, no long-term money. And I think you, like a lot of these teams, like you get to play your young guys and just see more of them that, that can be valuable. And the Pacers... Maybe I would guess they would like him to be their 10th man reserve three right now. We'll see what they really think about his future because his contract is expiring and the Pacers will have to figure that out in July. If you would like coverage of the Spurs, what they did at the deadline, you've already been scouting guys, uh, breaking (laughs) down the Spurs offense. The Vic and Rolls, the place for you, Noah. Where can people find you and that work that I just mentioned covering the San Antonio Spurs and Victor Wembanyama, who, if you are not. 
I will talk for you for a second. I set alarms to watch the Spurs sometimes. Like I, I know it's like people have pretended for some reason that Victor hasn't been what was he's hyped up to be, but he has been, especially recently. It's Absolutely. Crazy. Tell people where to find you and your recovery. <laughs> the most fun 10-win team of all time because they have one Benyama, the Spurs. Absolutely, yeah. First off, thank you so much for having me. And two, you can find me on Twitter or X, whatever you want to call it, at N underscore Magaro. That's M-A-G-A-R-O. You can find me at the Vic and Roll on Substack. And uh, we're going to be kicking off our podcast here pretty soon over at the Vic and Roll too, so check that out yeah. there. But yeah, Tony, thank you so much for bringing me on. Love talking Spurs basketball. Hope Dougie McBuckets gets a few more threes and gets to live out his playoff dreams in Indiana. But yeah, had a blast talking basketball with you. And again, thank you so much for having me. This was great for you listening, everybody. I'm currently talking on Friday before the Pacers-Knicks game on Saturday. So I don't know if McDermott's playing, but you're about to hear me talk about Pacers-Knicks and whatever the Pacers did in their first road game of their three-game roadie ahead of the All-Star break. So stick around. Noah, thank you for the time, everybody. We'll see you, see you in a second. Hey, everybody, quick little break. Have to talk to you about the good folks over at LinkedIn Jobs. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs, who have all the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive. Hiring is simple when you have that many quality candidates. So easy, in fact that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours on LinkedIn jobs who know that small businesses are wearing so many hats, might not have the time or resources to hire. That's why LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make it easier. They have a new feature that helps you write job descriptions, making that even simpler. Two and a half small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring. You should be next. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash lockdown MBA. That's linkedin.com slash lockdown MBA to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. And we are back here on Locked on Pacers. Thanks for making us your first listen today and every single day. We got to talk about Pacers, Knicks. What a win for the Pacers. Make your second listen after this. Locked on Sixers. Hear about Buddy Heald first two games with Philly. Locked on Spurs for their end of the Pacers trade. Locked on Knicks for their end of this game. Lots to talk about to wrap up the deadline to keep the games rolling. Speaking of wrapping up the deadline, if you want more on Buddy Heald's role in the Pacers trade deadline, a little more info came out about that the day after we learned everything uh, from the Pacers front office. Greg Doyle and I both have some reporting up on that. Check it out. Need to start. Greg had it first. Uh, and it does change the thinking a little bit of what the Pacers did and what it means. But that's not what we're talking about today. We're talking Pacers, Knicks. Pacers just beat the Knicks handily in MSG 125-121. I will squash this right now. I've already gotten the reply on Twitter. They didn't have OG and they didn't have Hardenstein. They didn't have Julius Randle. Yes, that is all true. You know what else is true? The Pacers played that exact Knicks team with Hardenstein, but without Bojan and Alec Burks nine days ago and got smoked. They didn't get smoked. They lost by four. But they got their butts kicked in annoying ways to lose for a team. Out-hustled, out-physicaled, all sorts of yucky stuff. And they really overcame all that in this one. Much better performance from the Pacers in this one, who did not let the Knicks kill them on the glass. The Knicks had five offensive rebounds. In this game, Hardenstein not playing helped, but Precious Achua had more offensive rebounds than that by himself the last time the two teams played, right? So much better from the Pacers on that front and then many other fronts for the Pacers as well. For example, and the guy that I would like to lead with, even though I don't think he had the number one best game for any Pacer, is Miles Turner. If you remember the last time these two teams played, Turner had, I think, five points and four rebounds the whole game. Hartenstein was tough for him. He did not have a good night finishing plays. Miles Turner had five points and three rebounds in like two seconds. 
tonight. He was physical early. He battled on the glass. He made jumpers. He attacked the rim. He attacked mismatches. He set really hard screens. He was way better than that game. Way better. Most engaged he's been in a bit, and he had one of his best games of the season. 23 points, 8 rebounds, 4 assists for Turner, plus 5 in a big win. But I haven't even said the best thing he did. He didn't miss a shot. 9 for 9 from the field. Made both of his threes way better against a physical Knicks team that was tough for him earlier this season. He was kind of the face of their improvement to me, not only because maybe his worst game of the season came against this Knicks team earlier this month, but because he himself was just eons better and set the tone early, right? The Knicks were able to get the lead a few times in the second quarter. It wasn't a wire-to-wire win, but I don't think the Knicks lead gets more than like three, four, five-ish. I could just easily check right now. And that's because the Pacers set the tone, and they knew that four was the biggest Knicks lead. So the Pacers knew they had what it took, and they dominated. Once they got the lead back late in the second quarter, they held it the rest of the way. Stylistically, the Pacers did a lot of stuff really good. And it actually felt like this is how the game was going to go to me, and I'll explain why. Early in the game was really funny. The Pacers, at the end of the first quarter, were losing by one or two, and they were shooting 70% from the field, and they were losing. It was so strange. I was like, how is this possible? Can this be maintained? Can the Knicks keep this up? So what happened was, in the first quarter, the Pacers were unbelievable. I think they were 10 for 12 or something like that on two-point shots, but they were terrible from three. They were like two for seven from deep. Um, maybe this was like mid-second quarter, these were their stats. They were one for five from the foul line, and they had like seven turnovers, right? So they weren't making their freebies at the foul line. They weren't making their open threes, and they were coughing up a bunch of possessions. All they had to do is clean up one of those things, and they were going to bust this game wide open. And that's what happened late in the second quarter. Aaron Neesmith came in. A couple things happened. Aaron Neesmith came in and started drilling threes. That fixed that problem. The Pacers as a team started making their foul shots. That fixed that problem. And they took care of the ball a lot better, right? They had, like I said, seven turnovers pretty quick in this game. They they had seven turnovers at halftime, to be clear. That got better as the game progressed. And so once they ju- they just had to clean up one of those things, they cleaned up all of them. They finished 11 for 19 from the line. That's not that good. In the second half, they were 8 for 10, right? 80% well above league average. So uh, that was huge. And it felt like because they were able to get whatever shot they wanted early in the game and they finished at 61% from the field. So they continued to do that throughout the night. It felt like all they had to do was start making the open threes they were generating, start making the foul shots they were earning, or just take care of the ball a little better. Any one of those things would have been enough. And they got all of them. Like I just said, the turnovers were better after the mid-second quarter. They made the threes. They shot 48.3% from long range in this game. They made their foul shots in the second half. And they kept the Knicks from doing the stuff that the Knicks did so well last time these two teams played. So that's good growth from the Pacers and a good response, right? After that Warriors game, or the Warriors game. Yeah, that's right. After the Warriors game, they just needed to show some heart, some pride. They were miserable that night. No effort. Their lowest effort performance of the season to me. And they had some yucky effort moments, the bench specifically in the first half of this game. But they cleaned it up. They played a pretty complete game and crushed the Knicks. In MSG, and again, I get that the Knicks are very banged up, but they've been winning with this crew, including against the Pacers. So nice win for the Pacers. Win number 30. They're seven away from last season's record. Uh, two more for the All-Star break, Toronto and Charlotte. I'm not saying they'll win both, but I, they'll be favored in both. If they can sweep this road trip, that would be huge for their record, confidence, standings. The Magic got to win tonight. All sorts of stuff heading into the break. So what else happened in this game? What individuals allowed the Pacers to get open threes, to get to the line, to beat the Knicks in their house by 14. Well, the guy who – there's a couple guys who deserve a ton of praise. 
McConnell, Isaiah Jackson, I'll get to in a second. I have to start with Tyrese Halliburton, even though it wasn't like a super standout game from Tyrese Halliburton. He was basically right at his season averages, 22 points, 12 assists. It's, first of all, insane that that's his averages, but that is basically his average stats for a game this season. A little bit above his assists, a little below on his scoring. He was plus 11. That was the third highest on the Pacers. The reason his stat line is significant in this game, beyond that it was really good, 22 is his, it's his second 20-point game since the injury in the Celtics game. That was over a month ago now, by the way. That was January 8th. This game was on February 10th. His second 20-point game in a month. The other one was the Blazers game, where he played a lot and then didn't play again for five games. The other thing that was significant for Halbert in this game, he played 30 minutes and 18 seconds. That is the second time, the other one being the Blazers game, that he was able to play 30 minutes in a game. So if he can play a lot and feel out the game and figure out how he can adjust and beat Tyrese Halliburton, like he was doing the thing, he always starts a little slow. He's more pass happy in the first half. He just explodes all of a sudden. He made a cr some crazy shots in this game to get to 22 points, but that was encouraging to me. Looked more like himself after not at all looking like himself two nights ago, was able to play more often. That's all very significant to me. And if they can play him 28 to 30 of these last two heading into the break, that's a big deal. To be able to add in the scoring element is important after a five-point game against Golden State. He, when the Knicks were surging in the second quarter and looked like they were about to maybe get their grip on the game, he hit an insanely tough fallaway three from the right corner to keep it close. And at the halftime buzzer, he hit or a third quarter buzzer, uh, halftime buzzer. I, I can't remember. At the halftime buzzer, he hit a buzzer beater. He he checked he checked into the game with six seconds left in the half and hit a huge three humongous three uh, to grow the Pacers lead going into halftime. Those two shots were massive. He had the play of the night as an off. If you haven't seen it yet, find a way and off the backboard self pass to himself. And he caught it in the air. And instead of shooting, he flung it to Pascal Siakam in the corner. That is a shot that is a hundred percent accuracy. <laughs> Siakam is not a hundred percent shooter, but the basketball gods will not let that, <laughs> that shot not go in. Very cool play. Good in game from Halbert. And statistically, he shot 50% from the field. He made four of his nine threes. He got to the foul line. 22 and 12, played over 30 minutes. Encouraging signs. And the Pacers need those from him. Uh, another thing to talk about, shining bench players. Isaiah Jackson played because Jalen Smith's lower back spasms kept him out of the skin. First half, Jackson was fine. He had two earlier fouls, so he couldn't be as aggressive as he normally is. He did end up fouling out of this game. But holy smokes, was he impactful. 12 points, only missed one shot. Eight boards, three of them were offensive. Awesome defense, plus nine. In the second half in particular, he was so forceful. He was disrupting Nick's shots around the basket. He was grabbing crucial offensive rebounds. He was moving the ball. He was running in transition, finishing plays. That When he's engaged like that, he just looks so good. And I know he had six fouls, and that's not good, obviously, but... He, I think they were all shooting fouls. And I, I know this sounds insanely stupid to say. Shooting fouls are bad. But compared to Isaiah Jackson of the past, where he'd foul out with two offensive rebounds on a moving screen and like a dumb reach-in that are just valueless fouls that mean he can't play as much, to have them all at least be productive fouls like is meaningful. And that's impactful progress. He was awesome in this game. And he wasn't even the Pacers' best bench player. TJ McConnell was brilliant. Turned the tie to the game. Uh, this was very similar to the Rockets game, and I'll explain why in a second, uh, in terms of how McConnell's impact mattered so much. He was 8 for 10 with 16 points, 4 boards, 6 assists, only 1 turnover, plus 6 
for the Pacers. And a night that their bench was not particularly good in the first half, McConnell was rock solid all night. He hit the weird falling fadeaway shots that only he could make. He distributed. He pushed into the paint. He was fantastic. The reason it was so crucial in this game, and this is, again, very similar to that Houston game from earlier this week, right? I said this on the show. I said it to people sitting next to me and me to in that game. When the bench came in in that Houston game, the Pacers finally turned it around after a crummy first half. I said, if TJ McConnell plays well here and the bench keeps it ahead, they're going to win. And he was awesome. He was he was so good against the Rockets. Crappy second unit got it done. This time, Jalen Brunson was playing phenomenal. We just saw the Knicks complete a comeback in the second half against the Pacers in this building a couple weeks ago, right? The Pacers had to win the non-Brunson minutes, and they didn't do that that well in the first half, despite winning the Brunson minutes. So Brunson came out, and the Pacers were up like eight, I think. And by the time Jalen Brunson came back in, I think the Knicks were down 17 or 18 points in the fourth quarter because McConnell was awesome, and the bench in general was sensational, and McConnell was the leader of that. When he came in, it was 105-88 with 8.33 to go in the fourth quarter. So a 17-point game. They over-doubled their lead. McConnell was a huge part of that. His impact, pushing the pace, doing McConnelly things, was fantastic. He was a plus 8 in the fourth quarter. He was a plus 8. Isaiah Jackson was plus 13 in the fourth quarter of this game. That bench group was sensational. Obi Toppin made threes in the second half, which really redeemed an ugly first half for him with some turnovers. And, oh, a wide-open dunk. He went too flashy and missed it. Could have been a rough night for him, but he redeemed himself with the shots. So all in all, that those were the shining stars of the game to me because other guys were good. Aaron Neesmith saved them by starting to make threes in the first half, and he's just rock solid for the Pacers all the time. Pascal Siakam had 19 points on 13 shots, despite struggling mightily from the foul line. He would have had over 20 points easily if he could have hit his free throws. Plus seven, he was rock solid. Andrew Nemhard was plus 14 as a game high because – he never turned it over. He was great on defense. He kept the ball moving. He was very good, right? All these guys filled their role to the extent that the Pacers needed them to fill their role. But those guys were the standouts that got the Pacers a big bounce back win. They've won three out of four now. Some of the opponents weren't very good. This is a good win. Beating the Knicks is even, again, a hobbled Knicks team is good. Beating the Knicks on the road is very tough to do. That's a good win for the Pacers. Quality of players available. Be danged, especially with Hal- Halbert and Hobbled Smith out. I get that the Knicks are missing way more guys. Nice win for the Pacers who, again, are, believe it or not, 6-4 and four in their last 10 games. It does not feel like the Pacers are playing that well. But in their last 10, they beat Philly, Phoenix, Memphis, Charlotte, Houston, and now at Knicks. Does, again, it does not feel that way because of that road trip where Halberton was out and they made the mid-trade and went had that, you know, I think it was a 1-5 and five stretch. But they're now 6-4 in their last 10 and can surge into the break with like a 7 out of 12 Again, with an injury in there and a trade, I think they will take that. One other thing happened in this game. Doug McDermott debuted first game of the season for Mr. Dougie McBuckets with the Pacers. Did not play well. <laughs> um, he joined the team that day, so I'm not going to overanalyze his seven minutes and 19 seconds of play. The 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 only things he, – he came in and airballed a three on like his second possession. He had one foul as his only stat. I'm not again. I'm not going to overanalyze seven minutes of Doug McDermott play being with the Pacers for a day. What I only will count as noteworthy is one that he played. He was tenth guy in this game. Even if Jalen Smith was available, it's not like Isaiah Jackson's playing backup three. Uh, he played it all. So if you're making a pecking order for the Pacers, Ben Shepard was with the Pacers and available for this game. Seems like McDermott's ten, Shepard's eleven. I thought that would be the case, but still worth jotting down. Worth mental note. And two. 
he didn't play at all in the second half. So if the Pacers tighten things up and are, you know, really trying to put their foot on the gas or trying to desperately win a game, it seems like McDermott might be a little bit on the outside looking in, but Carlisle's been receptive to playing 10 this season. I'm not going to make any grand proclamation about their way they're going to use him from one game when they just got him, but to just, just keep an eye on what his rotation spot looks like. Either way, he played for the Pacers. He missed his only shot quite badly. We'll see if that, uh, what his rotation spot looks like, or if, they are a little hesitant to use him more than that for these next two games. And then when they have the all-star break and they can actually like practice, you know, if everybody remembers how much better Siakam was with a practice, we'll see if that can be the case for McDermott. We've plenty to talk about still from trade deadline fella on Monday. That's one of my favorite shows of the year because we'll forget there's a lot you can still do from our transaction perspective that matters a great deal after the trade deadline. So Monday show will be all about moves. The Pacers can still make this season. And at the end, we'll talk about trades that I think impact the Pacers that the Pacers weren't specifically involved in. That'll wrap up transactional coverage. We can roll into the games again because they play Monday night in Charlotte, and then it's right into All-Star. We'll be there on the ground for all the All-Star stuff. So we'll get coverage here on this podcast for that as well. Lots of fun stuff coming. Fun game for the Pacers. If you missed it, try to find a way to watch it because Pacers-Knicks was a good time. Thank you all for listening on this bonus weekend show. Hope you enjoyed the talk with Noah about Doug McDermott before he debuted for the Pacers. Plenty more to come here on Lockdown Pacers. Thank y'all for listening. Have a great rest of your weekend. We will see you on Monday.